Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good evening. Let me jump right into this. I've got a lot of ground I want to try to cover tonight. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll take a long time, but I want to get moving on it just in case. Two or three weeks ago here on Wednesday night, I think it was three weeks ago, I was sharing some stuff out of John chapter 5. I think if you were here, you remember we talked about after the feeding of the 5,000 that he went across the lake and then there were people who followed him over there. They realized he'd crossed the lake, so they crossed the lake too and then acted surprised to run into him. Jesus, what are you doing here? And he saw right through him and said, I know why you came over here. You came over here for more bread. I fed you yesterday, you want me to feed you, and they had this conversation. We're going to look at a little bit that again tonight, but I want to look at some of the stuff uh, a little more closely about the events that surrounded and the conversations that surrounded that. And let's start actually in uh, John chapter 5. Uh, I, that, I just ref, what the story I just referred to, I said John 5, it's actually in John 6, but I want to start in John 5 tonight. And this is right after he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. He's the one, he just, when he walked over, do you want to be made well? The guy had been laying there all these years, said, take up your bed and walk, and he did. And the Jews were after Jesus because he did this on the Sabbath. You know, they they grabbed the man, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Well, I was laying on this bed, and the guy told me to get up. The guy who, who healed me told me to carry it. And so they, well, who told you to do this? So they're, they're after Jesus about this. They confront him. And it says here, uh, we'll begin, uh, we're in chapter 5. Let's look quickly at this. At beginning in verse 17, Jesus answered them. Well, let's look at 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, verse 17, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Now skip down to verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness of Witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have, sent, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me, and the Father himself who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have the word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Referring to the scriptures. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, 
Moses, in whom you trust. Actually, that word one, if you read it without that, that, that one is in uh, italics, which means it's not in the original text. Try reading it this way. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you not, do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, there's a lot to unpack in that speech there, but I'm going to point out three things for you to notice. Number one, he said this a, f- a couple times, he wasn't seeking the approval of or reputation among men. The only testimony or approval he needs to continue in his ministry is that of the Father. Second, his desire is that they would receive him, not so he would experience their approval or popularity, but so that they could be saved. That was the heart of Christ. And finally, and this is the one we'll look more closely at tonight, he's making this astounding claim that Moses wrote about him, that Moses wrote about Jesus. And we looked Sunday in, as part of our praise and worship series, we looked at the tabernacle. Remember, we looked at how all the furnishings, all the different pieces of furniture and the courtyard and even the, the tabernacle, tabernacle itself all pointed to Jesus. And Jesus himself here is making that plain, that all these things, all these laws and rituals, uh, because everything we read, you know, the first five books of the Bible uh, traditionally attributed to Moses uh, and so all the law, all the stuff about the tabernacle, we, we, they, Moses is the one who wrote that, moved by the Holy Spirit, of course. And Jesus is saying that all these laws and rituals and all this stuff are there so that they would recognize the Messiah when he appears. That's what he means when he says, if you believed Moses, and if you understood Moses, you'd realize he's writing about me and you would believe me. But you don't. You don't even understand. You're trusting in the scriptures and you're trusting in Moses and Moses is the one who wrote about me. Uh, so he has this conversation with him, and the next thing we see is that he feeds the 5,000. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then, uh, let's look at, the, in fact, these first two verses in chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. Now, I want you to notice just quickly that he doesn't rebuke them for following him on account of the healings. It says here, that's why they gathered to him, 5,000 people. They gathered a great multitude, it says. It counts them later. But they saw the healings that he did, and so they followed him, and so he prepares to teach him. Now, we know the next day he's going to rebuke them for following him because of the bread. But he doesn't rebuke them for following him because of the healings. Uh, this is important to me because I, you have to understand, I 100% believe that God is for your prosperity. I believe prosperity is a good thing. It is a gift of God. It's something that he promises us. Uh, he is for your provision. If you don't like the, uh, that, the, the prosperity, uh, if you don't like that word because of the way it's been, I don't know, caricatured, then say you, you know, your provision or your supply, supernatural supply, abundant supply. But this has to be seen, uh, I think proper uh, biblical prosperity has to be seen as a side effect of trusting in Christ and believing in God. It's not that we don't exercise faith for it. We do, because it is a promise. But it's not as closely connected to the uh, atonement, 
to the finished work of Christ on the cross as healing. We don't legitimately follow God for prosperity. But we do follow him in part because of healing. Healing is part of the salvation package that Christ provides. All right? Uh, No, it's enough about that for right now. Uh, I want to get on to this. We're not to the good part yet. Anyway, he performs this miracle. Five loaves, two small fish, and he feeds 5,000 men. Uh, I don't know if that's 5,000 total or it's 5,000 plus women and children, right? But look at how much he feeds them. Verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves. We're in John chapter 6, verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. They got full. Verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. This is also more important, I think, than maybe we give it credit for because this shows us, this is just to let us know that this was not a miracle in the sense that Jesus simply, you know, he could have just waved his hands over the place and caused everybody's hunger to go away. He could have just supernaturally caused them to feel full. But he didn't. This was a physically uh, manifest miracle where he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Uh, After feeding 5,000 people, there was still way more food than they started out with. Has anybody heard this teaching that the miracle of the loaves and fishes was actually a miracle of sharing? Has anybody ever heard that teaching before? Uh, it's, it's, if, if it's presented right, it's kind of compelling. It's, it's hogwash, and I'll tell you exactly why here in a second. But it's basically that you've got 5,000 people there, and, and they weren't stupid. A lot of them had food, but not everybody had food. But nobody wanted to reveal that they had food because then the people, the nasty people sitting around them who didn't bring food would try to steal their food or make them feel guilty for having food. When this little boy comes up with the loaves and fishes and offers it and Jesus starts to share it with them, then they are moved by his compassion or moved by guilt into sharing their own lunch. And this is what it was, a miracle. And, and, and Jesus simply caused them to realize how much they had because, look, when everybody shared everything, there were still 12 baskets left over. Now, could God have done that? Could he have taught them a lesson like that? Absolutely he could have. Is there a chance that that's what happened here? There's not. If that's what they did, then why did this crowd of people follow him across the lake the next day? We forgot how to share, Lord, so we came here uh, so that you could teach us that lesson again. No, he gave them bread that they didn't have. So anyway, I want you to see something that happens in between here. Before, after he feeds them and before he meet, they, they catch up with him on the other side of the lake. And you know this story, but there's something you need to see again. In, uh, let's pick it up here in verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, went over, to the, uh, went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was, almost re- uh, sorry, it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Now the, then the sea arose because of a great... A, sorry, I'm trying to read too fast. 
Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. A couple of important things I want you to see here. He does this miracle, and it's a pretty extraordinary miracle. It's not like raising the dead in terms of importance. It's not like healing somebody who's at death's door in terms of importance. But it's a miracle on a large scale. He took a little bit of food and fed a lot of people and had a lot of food left over. And the crowd was so impressed, Jesus was able to tell that what they were about to do was simply snatch him into their midst and proclaim him as king. Now, what would be wrong with that? He is the king, right? Wouldn't it be great to have 5,000 people or 5,000 men plus women and children all at once say, you are our king? Wouldn't this have helped his cause? But why were they wanting to make him king? Jesus was not running some campaign He's not running for mayor or governor or even local king on a platform of, I promise, five loaves and two fish in every cupboard. And this is what they wanted. This, we'll serve this guy. Why? Because he's going to provide for us. It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? I'm not going to get all political here, but that's exactly how people get elected here today. I will give you this. This will be free, all right? And this is what they want. And Jesus is like, I'm not having any of that. So, uh, and the disciples get a double dose of this message because he just comes strolling out on the water toward them, and he's letting them know at this point, look, I'm not just some, I'm not some magician who does tricks with bread and fish. I am the Lord of creation. I'm not limited by nature. I'll walk on the water. And then what happens when he gets in the boat? Did you notice this? Immediately, the boat is where they were going. It's like they teleported. They're rowing three or four miles. Jesus comes walking out on the sea, gets in the boat with them, and then boom, they're done rowing. They're there. This is powerful stuff, miraculous stuff, supernatural stuff. So then we get to the part where we, uh, where we looked at three weeks ago. And the people... They come out the next day, and they realize he's gone. They figure out where he's gone. They get some boats, and they go over there, and they pretend to run into him. And, uh, and they're like, uh, hey, wow, that's, it's good to have you here. And, and Jesus, before they can even say anything, says, I know why you followed me. You followed me because I fed you yesterday, and you wanted me to feed you today. And they're like, oh, no, no, we just want to hear your words of wisdom, but uh, we want to see a sign just to prove you who you are. You know, uh, speaking of signs, our forefathers got a sign from Moses uh, when they were in the desert. Moses gave them manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And Jesus says, uh, well, let's look at what he says here. Jesus actually says, you know, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. He, He gave you manna. And then goes on to say that he is the true bread the true bread of heaven. And this is when he starts talking about some things that really slow them down in their eagerness to follow him and make him king. In verse 40, he says this, and this is the will of him who sent me. I'm still in chapter 6, John six forty. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Continue on. We're going to read the another about uh, 
three-quarters of a page, though. Then the Jews, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, you read on, and as you probably are aware or remember, this is the statement that caused many of his disciples to turn away. When you hear the word Jesus' disciples, you usually think of 12. Uh, there were 120 uh, that went with him wherever he went, and a great multitude of hangers-on. There, there was a crowd with Jesus, they, who, many of whom considered themselves his disciples. But this was going too far. And after he said this, they, they said, this is a hard saying. We can't even listen to it. And they turned from it. Jesus turned to the 12 who remained and said, are you going to leave too? And they're like, where are we going to go? You're the only one that has words of life. But there's no getting around it. This was a hard saying. Very difficult. Especially with no context. And I'm not just talking about the context of this story. I've told you this before. Uh, but I remember um, on our Mexico trips with YWAM, I did that three times. What a blessing they, they were. It was just, just, just what a great privilege to travel with that group and, and do the things we did. It was usually a spring break trip. Uh, but one of the things we did was we would carry as mu about as much as we could fit cases of uh, Spanish-language New Testaments. And we did that because you could get three or four New Testaments for the price of a whole Bible. And uh, we were trying to be economical and get as many of these things in the hands of as many people as possible. It seemed like a good idea. And it wasn't a bad idea. You know, that, that God can reveal his purposes and his call through just the New Testament. But I remember thinking, and this is something I've shared with you before. I shared it with the men the other night, uh, again, 
that I never really read the Old Testament until I went to Ramah. I knew the stories, and I had read chunks of it, uh, but I'd never read it through. I didn't understand the New Testament, in, or sorry, the Old Testament in its own context, all right? Seeing the flow of it. And I remember when I did, how stunned I was at how it fit together, not only within itself, but how it prepared you for the New Testament. A little phrase that many of you have learned is the, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And I remember thinking at that time, what were we doing just handing out New Testaments? How can we expect people to understand the significance of the things that Jesus did, the things that Paul wrote, without the framework of the Old Testament? And again, it's not, I, I don't, I'm not trying to limit God. I know God can still use that. You can pick up a scrap of, of uh, the book of John and get saved, right? But you really can't understand the New Testament as a whole without the Old Testament. Uh, there's an illustration in a great book called Eternity in Their Hearts by a great missionary, Don Richardson, who, who points this out about Paul. And I'm not saying he's 100% right, but there's something about this that rings true. Do you remember when Paul was at Mars Hill and he's uh, arguing, he's having a little uh, discussion with the philosophers, these people that would just come, their whole life was just uh, hanging out here and hearing some new thing. They love to hear somebody bring new ideas forth. And Paul begins to speak. He looks around, he sees all the idols. He says, uh, boy, I see that you're a very religious society because I saw all these idols. I even saw one that's uh, with, with this inscription, to the unknown God. And it's, this is the God I preach to you. So he starts to share with them. And then it says he starts to talk about the resurrection of the dead. And that's when the people stopped listening, most of them. A few stuck around and got saved. But when he started talking about Jesus rising from the dead, that was far enough and most people stopped listening. And Richardson points out the mistake Paul made was he started talking about the resurrection without first explaining why Jesus had to die. And that really makes sense. Same thing. We see all these things. Uh, well, why did Jesus have to come? Because of everything we read in the Old Testament. And there's enough of the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament that you can make sense of that. Anyway, all that to say, Jesus here has said more than once, Moses was writing about me. He's talking to the Jews. And this is not all the Jews. These are the, the, the Pharisees. These are the scholars who are challenging Jesus on the basis of the law that they understand. He's saying this law that you revere and this Moses who I know you revere all of that is about me. I wish you could see that because you revere the law, and if you saw that the law was about me, you'd believe in me. And that's what I want because if you believe in me, you'll be saved. But Moses didn't just write about the tabernacle. That was some fun, interesting stuff, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Moses wrote about the sacrifices, a lot about the sacrifices and the offerings, and there were several different kinds. There were sin offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings. And we can see, uh, you know, the Passover. We know the story of the Passover. If you don't, bear with me. I don't have time to explain it right now, but most of you know it. And we see this uh, beautiful picture of Jesus as the lamb, spotless, without blemish, and the blood applied to the homes as the blood applied to our hearts. And the angel of death, God's judgment, passes over those whose hearts are sprinkled with that blood. There were several different offerings, like I said, and some offerings like the sin offering. These were offered 
and they were burnt and offering and offered entirely to God. The entire animal was laid on the, uh, the altar and burnt, and the whole thing was given to God. Uh, other offerings were eaten. Uh, parts of the offering were eaten by the priests. This was their portion for doing the work of the tabernacle. They got to keep some of the grain, some of the oil, some of the meat. Uh, they would take certain parts out, offer those to God, and then the, the priesthood, uh, the Levites would live off what was left. They would eat the remainder of the sacrifice. There was one offering that was eaten by the priest and the person making the offering. You figure, you know, if you, if you picture the offerings and the, even the sacrifices as a portion of what you had, it seems kind of weird. I'm giving this to God. I'll go home and eat my own stuff. But part of the ritual of the peace offering was you would bring this animal, lay your hands on it, you kill it, and then you would give uh, parts of it to God. You would take the uh, right shoulder and the breast of the animal and give that to the priest. And then you ate the rest in the presence of God. You'd eat it right there in the tabernacle courtyard. It was this meal. It was a celebration called the peace offering. Another term for the peace offering is the offering of well-being. That's how that Hebrew word for peace offering is translated, the offering of well-being or fellowship offering. This was a meal. It wasn't offered for sin. It wasn't offered for a tithe. It was simply, I'm bringing this to God to celebrate the covenant relationship I have with him. It was a privilege to, to enjoy the peace offering meal. You're eating you're, like you're dining with God. Now, Moses also wrote, in addition to writing about the tabernacle, about the other laws, about the Passover and the sacrifices, he also wrote that the blood was not to be eaten. Whatever animals they ate, and this goes back further, a lot further back than Moses himself. This goes back to Noah. You don't have to turn here if you, want, if you don't want to. I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of Genesis. In fact, I'll just read it right there. This is what he's saying to Noah after uh, dry land appears and they're disembarking. Disembarking. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as, the, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. He's telling him, at this, from this point on, you can eat animals, not just the plants that I gave you in the garden. But uh, he would go on, and then later on, of course, in the Mosaic Law, there were certain animals you couldn't eat. There were clean animals, there were unclean animals. But even the clean animals, whenever you ate it, you had to slit its throat, hang it upside down, drain the blood out before you prepared it. God was tying the, 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 the uh, life of the animal to the blood of the animal, just as he did with mankind. And this is a lesson he drives home and nails down again and again through the law. Uh, you can eat the animal's flesh, don't take the lifeblood of the animal. This is symbolic. It's still practiced in some cultures even today that if you drink the blood of a certain animal, you take the spirit of that animal. Anybody ever see Red Dawn, the original Red Dawn back in the 80s? You know that part where they kill this deer and they make the, it's the first time this, this uh, nervous little rebel has uh, killed anything and they make him drink the blood of the deer. They say, you drink it and you have the spirit of the deer. Something he learned from his hunter father. And this, and this is something that's really believed in many cultures and has been for uh, centuries, for millennia. Uh, God irrevocably ties the life of animal and man to their blood. When we talk about the word, you can say, uh, 
if I say bloodshed, we're talking about killing. Blood guiltiness, the, the Bible talks about. It's talking about death, talking about killing, murder, or, or uh, manslaughter. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The life is in the blood. And God is saying, don't drink the life of the animal because I'm saving this idea of taking on the nature of that which you consume for something special. The life is not in the flesh. The life is in the blood. So you drain the blood out, you eat that flesh. The flesh is to sustain you. The flesh is to nourish you. It's to keep you well, to keep you satisfied. The blood is where the life is. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying you have to receive me, flesh and blood, for eternal life. We'll start with the blood. You know we have no hope of salvation without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And yes, we are washed by that blood, but we also receive his life. The life is in the blood. We receive the spirit of Christ in us. And what happens? See, I'm just trying to get you to understand the difference. As we talked about on Sunday, that blood used to be poured out or sprinkled on the mercy seat, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it covered. We somehow receive that life of Christ within us. And what happens? We take on the nature of the one whose blood is in us. This is what God's desire is. This is the desire of Jesus Christ. I want you to drink my blood so that you can become like me. You receive that Christ-likeness. God wasn't saying, if you ever drink the blood of a goat, you're going to become a goat, or you're going to have the spirit of a goat. Again, he's just saving this imagery for something special. He wanted to nail down the connection between the life and the blood so that we, could, we, we would see that to receive the blood of Christ is to become like him. But he's also saying that he, doesn't, he is not just represented by the sin offering. The sin offering is the biggie. And when we think about the, 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 again, like I mentioned, the Passover, there's some great imagery there. But it's not just the Passover that speaks of Jesus. It's not just the tabernacle. And the, and the, it's everything. It's the lampstand. It's the showbread, right? It's the altar of incense. It's the, it's the, the bronze laver. Uh, and it's the, it's the uh, altar of sacrifice. All these things. And all these individual laws, all these rituals, all these sacrifices, all these offerings, every one of them shows us something about Jesus. So it's not just when we talk about sacrifice and we talk about offering, it's not just the sin offering that represents Jesus. It's the peace offering. His blood cleanses us and his blood changes us, but his flesh heals us. His flesh makes us well. Remember the other name for the peace offering? The offering of well-being. Jesus said, you, take, you receive my flesh, that is for your well-being. You receive my blood, that is for your eternal life, because that's my life. My life is in the blood, you get my blood in you, you live forever. I want you to think about it. Now, honestly, this would be a great communion meditation, but it's too long. Okay, uh, I think we could do a whole sermon on communion and then take communion. But I want you to think about that. Uh, when you take communion, this is what you take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's all right there. Was Jesus specifically talking about communion when he said this? 
No, but he was actually setting the stage for that teaching. He was not, obviously, encouraging them to come up and take a bite out of his arm or anything like that. Nothing crass like that, but he really did mean what he's saying. You have to, you're not just going to follow my teaching. You are not just going to follow my signs. You are going to receive me. Not as a worker of miracles, but as the God of creation. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.